you will turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. And I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again tonight. Preaching is a little different than teaching a Bible study or um, teaching a Sunday school class. So I am going to once again imagine you all in green Chatham County jumpsuits, uh, if that's okay with you all. I'm doing it right now. Okay. Let's, uh, let's bow and uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you again tonight rejoicing, Lord, that we are saved rejoicing that we are your children and co-heirs of Christ. Lord, as we delve into Romans 8 tonight and other scriptures, we ask that you would open our minds and hearts to the truth of your word. Let it illuminate our lives. Uh, Lord, help us to take those truths that we find here and practically apply them to our lives because you lay them out so practically before us. Help us to see those things, Lord, and help us to live in accordance with your word and in obedience to your word. We thank you and we ask your blessing on our time tonight and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 8. I'll begin reading in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. <clears throat> There is a quote in your notes from John Owen uh, from his book of The Mortification of Sin and Believers, and it's a very good quote. I will read it for you, and we can read it together. He says, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. This is sort of an expansion of a Bible study we did on Wednesday night once about the mortification of sin. Uh, in Romans 8 is kind of our main text. But those two verses we just read gives us the clear call to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Here we are told what we must do, which is kill sin. We are also told how we must do it, by the Spirit. We are also told the benefits of killing the sin in the Spirit, and by the Spirit you will live. To make it even clearer, we're told the consequences of failing to kill a sin by the Spirit, meaning you will die. Very clear cut. Some people have confused uh, Romans 8, verses 12 through 13. Uh, even though it is very stark in its clarity, they may think this verse is telling us how to earn eternal life, how to earn God's favor. It is not. This verse is addressing Christians. Like every one of the epistles... They were written. They were written to Christians, for Christians. And so when we look at these verses, we need to know that it is addressing Christians and because we have already been forgiven. Christians have already been forgiven and who have already received the gift of life by the Holy Spirit. Look at, back at the beginning of the chapter, uh, <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Notice in verse 13, going back to verse 13, that it is only by the spirit that we can put to death the deeds of the body. Only Christians 
have received the Holy Spirit. And only Christians have that presence of the Holy Spirit by faith and not by works. So there's no earning anything. So how can Paul then say that Christians might die if they don't put sin to death by the Spirit? Consider what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 30 and 32 through 32. He's talking to Christians who were giving in to fleshly, worldly sin at the Lord's Supper. Some of these Christians were getting drunk. Some of them were getting gluttonous at the Lord's table. And Paul said to them, that is why many of you are weak and ill. And some have what? Died. These Christians were being judged as disciplined from the Lord. So that, as we see in verses 31 and 30, through 32, they might not be condemned and consigned to hell with the unbelieving world. God takes our growth and holiness and Christ-likeness very, very seriously, as should we. This is what he has elected and called us to be, holy and Christ-like. And we see that in Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. God then gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us as we strive towards this goal that he has placed firmly in our hearts, a desire given by him and pleasing to him. He disciplines us in very various ways when we neglect calling and our calling and slide into fleshly, selfish ways of thinking and living. Most Christians get this at some level. We talk about struggling with sin or struggling against the flesh. Uh, we might even say we're wrestling with a particular sin or struggling with temptation. But I think our very language, in that sense, sort of betrays the fact that we are not taking the charge to kill sin seriously enough. We can't afford to struggle or wrestle with something as deadly as sin. God says we have to kill it. Kill it. Final. Killing sin is not a one-time simple procedure. There's not a 12-step program. There's not anything you can do to, to finish it up in a month or a year or even five years' time. But as long as we remain in this flesh, we are going to be subject to temptations and we must constantly, vigilantly, diligently, and ruthlessly kill sin. We cannot be content to try to control it, handle it, deal with it, manage it, or even subdue it. It's either sin or us, and so sin must die. When Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me in Matthew 16, 24, he meant that very thing. When Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Galatians chapter 2, or I die every day in 1 Corinthians 15, when those things were said, they were meant. This is a very practical thing. These aren't just pie-in-the-sky words for us to kind of fawn over and say, oh, that sounds really nice. These are practical instructions. So how do we do it? Well, I put some steps there in your notes. Step one, we have to recognize the call to kill sin. Because this is where a lot of people fail. We don't recognize the call. Step one in killing sin by the Spirit is to realize what that call is, who the call is for, how serious the call is, and what means God has given us for carrying out, out His own call to us. And that call is this. 
Christians who have the Holy Spirit indwelling us are called to kill sin daily by the power of the Holy Spirit or risk the reality of being killed by sin. That is the bare bones fact. Christians who have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, living in us at the moment of salvation, are called to kill sin daily by the power of the Holy Spirit or risk the very real reality of being killed by that very sin. So once we have the call, we move on to step two. Know and live your identity in Christ. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 read this way. If you want to flip over there with me. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. If you are a Christian, you not only belong to Christ, but you are united with Christ. You are one with him. If step one in killing sin is to realize what the call is, and that is to kill sin, to whom the call is addressed, Christians, and the means for fulfilling the call by the power of the Holy Spirit, then step two is to fully understand who you are in Christ. And then begin to live a life out of that mindset that comes from that identity with Christ. Begin to live life that says, I belong to Christ and I am united with Christ. Make your life look that way. Not only look that way, but be that way. Show that fruit of salvation. So what does it mean that we belong to and are united with Christ? Three things, or four things actually. You've been raised with Christ, number one. Number two, spiritually speaking, in your union with Christ, you were seated with Christ in the heavens at the right hand of God. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Number three, you have been crucified with Christ, meaning you have died to sin. This means that sin is no longer your master, no longer has command over you, and you are no longer compelled to obey its desires. And number four, your real life is hidden with Christ and God. Christ is your life. We really need to spend time meditating on passages like Colossians 3 and Ephesians 2 and Romans 6 and 1 Peter chapter 2. All those passages will help you solidify your understanding of your new identity in Christ, what that is. Even if you've been a Christian for 20 or more years or however long, it's always good to go back and remind ourselves of our identity and who we are. Not only who we belong to, but the fact that we are united with him. <clears throat> then we're to worship God with our new identity in Christ, living it out in that way. And then as we're living our life, continually, continually, continually preach these truths to ourselves. It's very important that we do that. Many, many times we forget that. And I think that's why a lot of uh, anxiety comes into the Christian's life is because they forget to tell themselves these things. Not only just say it and remind it like a reminder, but preach it to yourself. Go to God's word. Remind yourselves of those verses. Memorize those verses and just continually preach those promises that God has made to us about our identity and who we are. 
Step three then would be simply get grace. Well, easier said than done, right? Not really. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Flip there with me, if you will. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And I'll read through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." Then again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you are now being perfected by the flesh? Here is the truth. We cannot kill sin on our own. We are powerless to do so. God's grace has already appeared to train us, and God's Spirit was given to us to empower us to live for God and not for our flesh. We desperately need the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we get that grace that we need? Well, there's tons of ideas that have been battered about over the last, well, forever, about how to be more filled with the Holy Spirit and how to get more grace. Um, you may remember the prayer of Jabez, uh, Purpose Driven Life. Those were two popular ones about a decade ago. Today it may be a Jesus Calling book or some other fad, I call them fad diet books uh, for Christians. But God has not made accessing his grace a big secret. He has not made accessing his grace and the power of his spirit a secret. Nor does he want us seeking him outside of his word and apart from his people. I think what a lot of people want from these trendy fads, perhaps what most people want um, out of the church, is basically a shortcut formula. Um, a shortcut formula to, to that happy life, that perfect life, that, that life that's free from struggle. Nowhere in God's word does he promise that. Nowhere. It's a lie. God does promise, however, never to leave us nor forsake us. And he promises to give us what we need to live a life that pleases him. Not a life completely free from sin. Not a life completely free from struggle or heartache or pain. But a life of genuine love for God and for others. So how do we get the grace we need for a life of godliness? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, past tense, through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. God has already given us means of grace, ordinary means of growing in extraordinary grace. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is very helpful when it says in question 88, what are the outward and ordinary means but whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer is, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, the sacraments, what we would call the Lord's Supper or communion, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. I would add also to that the gathering together of believers as a means of grace um, because that's something else that bolsters our faith and helps us live the Christian life, that accountability. 
But we're going to just tackle those first three means of grace. Each of them has two aspects. I think they're there in your notes. The first one is the word. God speaking to us. God talking to us through his word. Reading the word. As we read the word, we grow in understanding of God, his character, his purpose, his work of redemption, his precious promises. We see how God has dealt with his people in the past, how he's been faithful to his promises, how he has been merciful to his people, and also how his people have suffered from their foolishness and their disobedience. That is the one thing that when I became a Christian, that I always tell people that kind of steered me towards belief. I knew it was God the whole time, but God does not sugarcoat a thing in his word. It's all right there in technicolor for us to look at. Because human beings don't change, but thankfully, neither does God. And he has been long-suffering with us. So we see all of that, even the disobedience and the foolishness of his people in God's word. The world never stops telling us its story of selfishness and materialism. That's a story our flesh likes to hear, too, isn't it? We need to counter that story with God's truth and his word. So that's reading the word. Next would be the preached word. God gave the church pastor teachers to preach the word and by doing so equip the saints. And we all need to be sitting under sound biblical teaching. God uses preaching to apply his word to our hearts in a way that simply reading it, studying it, or even discussing it with others cannot match. So we need to be under solid biblical teaching. Two, the ordinances. These are God picturing... um, himself and his promises and his grace to us. The first one would be baptism. Baptism identifies us as belonging to God's people. The washing of water kind of describes and depicts the regenerating and cleansing work of the Holy Spirit when he applied the work and righteousness of Christ to us. Baptism remembered, when we think about it, or go back to that, helps remind us of who we are and whose we are helping us deal with those questions of identity in Christ that sometimes can plague Christians. Questions of assurance. Am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? That's more common than you would think. Then we have the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an ongoing ordinance. It's a means of grace where we commemorate Jesus' substitutionary atonement. His flesh and blood given for us symbolized by the bread and wine. It also reminds us of the historical truths of the gospel, including Christ's incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And also it prompts us to repent of any known sin and causes us to rejoice in our salvation. Communion also motivates us to continue walking in loving obedience to the Lord and reminds us of his return. Those are all things that are wrapped up in the Lord's Supper. The third thing would be prayer. This is one where many of us fail. We pour out our hearts in God to praise and repentance and thanksgiving and request. The first type of prayer would be private prayer. The name kind of speaks for itself. But Jesus repeatedly told his disciples to get alone in prayer with their heavenly father. And he set the example by spending all night in private prayer on multiple occasions. Jesus also gave us a model for prayer in the Lord's Prayer, which we find in Matthew 6. And he showed us that we are able to praise God, seek his kingdom, and his will first and foremost. 
And then we present our needs to him and we ask for forgiveness and seek his help against temptation. All of those things are wrapped up in prayer. And we should be thinking of those things when we are in prayer, consciously praying that way. And then we have public and corporate prayer. Prayer is not just a private exercise, not just an individual experience. God also calls us to gather with his people for prayer. The early church in Acts gathered for prayer repeatedly, and God used their prayers in mighty, mighty ways in that early church. And so we are to do the same. And so these means of grace are outward and ordinary. They're very clear in the scriptures. They're also very powerful and transformative. And when we truly seek the Lord and by faith in those things, we can easily do all the things in an empty manner. And many times we are guilty of that out of a sense of routine, out of a sense of obligation, or we can seek the Lord in his word, in his ordinances, and in prayer. We don't need emotional experiences. We don't need some new secret insight to God's word. We need the Lord, and he is not hiding from us. He's been very clear in the pages of his word. And he will give us the grace that we need to keep growing in Christ. And that is what sanctification is all about. Growing in Christ as we live out our Christian lives. So we have those means of grace. We, to kind of sum up, to kill sin, we've seen so far three things we have to do. Understand and respond to the call to kill sin by the Holy Spirit. Know and live our identity as children of God who have been born again and who have the Holy Spirit already. And three, acquire the grace we need to be empowered to kill sin and grow spiritually through God's ordinary means of grace. And once we have that grace, what do we do? Well, if you'll turn over to Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, great memory verses. Once we have that grace, once God, and we realize all those things, our call, our identity, the grace, Colossians chapter 3 verse 9, calls us to the daily exercise of putting off the practices of the old self or the old man and putting on the practices of our new self or new man. <clears throat> Do not lie. Colossians 3, verse 9 says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And consider this from Ephesians 4. But you did not learn Christ in this way, Ephesians 4, verse 20, if you want to look there. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That, in reference to your former manner of life, former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on the new self, which, is in the, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. There's a great verses, great things we need to remember. Put aside the old self. We're being told to do something. Put that aside. This is killing sin. Killing the sin that permeated our lives. That controlled our lives, in fact, before we were saved. You're not that person anymore. You're a brand new person. The old habits, the old ways, the old thoughts, the old patterns, those are done. They're not done if we don't kill it. 
daily and become someone new. We're being told to do this. This is a command. This is not, not a suggestion. So, the principles behind these passages teach us foundational, practical Christian living. It teaches us, and it's very simple. Number one, your outward behavior is a reflection of your inward desires. That is absolutely biblical and absolutely practical. As you love Jesus more and more, number two, you must also work to live out what you believe and who you love. This is not a thing when we get saved where we sit on our hands and say, okay, I'm good. In one sense, yes, because we've been saved. But in another sense, God is saying, okay, now that you've been saved, now you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now that you have been saved, show people that you are saved. Show me that you're saved. Continue to be molded. I'm going to mold you and shape you, but you need to put to death those old sins. I will help you. I have given you my spirit to do so. I have given you my grace to do so. But you cannot sit on your hands as a Christian. Not ever. That is a grievous sin. And number three of the principles behind those passages we just read. Again, we're not going to simply do nothing as Christians. You'll be doing something. So as you stop the old patterns of life that come out of selfishness and unbelief, they have to be replaced with new patterns. And those patterns are patterns of life that come out of love for Jesus. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 give a number of specific examples of the kind of behavior change. I've put them there in your notes. We won't go through every one of them exhaustively. We might just skim through them, but you need to take those and look at them. Uh, look, correspond them with uh, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 and look those over in your private study. But those chapters are not giving us, again, exhaustive lists. Notice also that when Paul tells us to put off sinful patterns in these chapters, he's using the language of putting these things to death, to kill them. In other words, we're not supposed to be putting off things and then kind of folding them up and putting them away in a drawer to be brought out later when we want to put them on again. They die by our hand. We are to put them off and put them to death. Some of the things there in your notes. Put off and kill sexual immorality, any kind of impurity, passion. The Greek there is pathos. It means an unhealthy or inordinate desire, evil desires, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, stealing, corrupt talk. Bitterness, clamor, which is a crying out, sort of an outcry, very loudly complaining. We are to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, peace, work, worship, kindness, tenderheartedness. We can look at these passages and look at these lists two different ways. We can look at them as a do and don't list, and you can just go down and check them off as you go. Or we can look at them as what they really are, descriptions of the overflow of two different heart bents, two different heart orientations. And so the context of both of those books, Colossians and Ephesians, makes it clear that we're to read these in the second way. 
Seeing these as an overflow of our own hearts. What they are and what they could be. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. It reads this way. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see, what drives the quest for holiness, what should drive the quest for holiness in Christians, is a fear of God. And we toss that around. The word awesome is tossed around so much, it's become part of the uh, cultural vernacular. Um, But it actually means a holy terror, a righteous awe of God. It's not just sort of an inordinate terror, but it's it's a fear in the sense of reverence. I think sometimes we forget who God is. And in our minds, we try to make God conform to us. We try to make him more in our image. And if you go back and look through the entirety of the Bible, you'll see people have done that before and where that ended up for them. And it wasn't great. But we have to remember, this is what makes me want to abstain from fleshly lusts and fix my eyes solely upon Christ is that fear, that reverence, that awe. We can never forget that. And I think the church as a whole has lost that, frankly, in these days. I don't think there's enough fear of God. And seeing our place in relation to him, man has always tried to elevate himself at least to the level of God, if not above. In many, many ways. And sometimes it's very subtle. Sin is very subtle. But this fear is what makes me want to, it's what motivates me to meditate on God's word, to read it, and not just to read it, and understand the words there, and check off the list on on our list, and close the Bible until it's time to read it again. You read it, and you reread it, and you reread it, and you reread it, and then you digest it. Selah is not just stop and meditate. It's stop and meditate in the ideas of digesting what the psalmist has just written. Internalizing it, making it a part of you, practically applying God's word to our lives to teach us how to live. But that fear of God should motivate me, that fear of God and the love of God also. It makes me want to meditate on God's word to open my heart as a channel to constantly commune with the Lord. It makes me want to, against my very fallen nature, depend solely upon the Holy Spirit for strength to fight that self-same nature that we all have. And as I said, sin is very, very subtle. It's very powerful. It hides. It lies dormant. And if it's not killed, it comes back stronger than ever. We can never, ever rest in the conflict. It is a daily event, a minute-to-minute event. It must be dealt with. And only when we deal with that sin, only then do we enjoy the rest and the peace and the stillness and the richness of all that God has for us. We are fools to think that the war is over when we walk out of this building. We are fools to imagine that the war is over every time we say amen. We are fools to believe that we can fight 
and destroy sin on our own power, in our own flesh. But the really, really great thing is we don't have to. We already have the means given to us at the moment of salvation by God. He has shown us in his word what those things are. They are at our fingertips. We have the weapons we need to fight that war. We have the weapons we need to kill sin in our lives right here. And we ignore it and we put it up on a shelf and let it collect dust. And it's the thing we need the most. We also have each other as allies in the battle. The church, the strength of God's people, united, standing together, holding each other accountable, loving one another, fellowshipping with one another, not just at meals here at the church, not just at somebody else's house, but real fellowship. We have this, and we ignore it, and we ignore it at our own peril. And lastly, not least of all, we have the power of Almighty God through His Holy Spirit enabling us to pick up the sword and go to war as we pray together. Father, we are again the recipients of Your truth. And we know that we have done nothing to earn it nothing to gain it, nothing to deserve it. It is just your sheer sovereign grace that has opened our minds and given us life and the ability to apprehend and to know and to believe and to love and to digest and to apply your word. And we thank you again this afternoon for its very richness. We thank you for your words work in us, in our hearts, molding us and shaping us into the image of Christ over the course of our lives. We thank you that it is alive and powerful and it is the sharpest sword imaginable for killing sin. And we do that, Lord, we kill sin for your glory and our blessing. And for the testimony that a holy life has to those who are watching. Those people are always watching. And so Lord we commit this truth that we have gleaned from your word tonight. We commit its usefulness to the Holy Spirit who alone can conform us to that which pleases you. And it is in Christ's holy name as our Lord and Savior that we pray. Amen.